Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine as we're going through the Gospel of Luke here that what we read this morning is your first encounter with Jesus Christ. Imagine that everything that you know about him, you know because of Luke's testimony about who he is and what he has done. And this is how it is for a lot of people who come to Christ. I know a number of people who at one point in their lives knew absolutely nothing about Jesus Christ. And one day someone handed them a Bible and they started going through one of the Gospels. And they learned. They learned who Jesus was. Who Jesus is. Beginning with the miraculous holy conception and birth of Christ, continuing through his ministry, his death and resurrection, they learned who Jesus is. And the magnitude of this testimony, the magnitude of this truth about who he is, led them to faith. This is something we should keep in mind as we go through the Gospels too. Sometimes as mature Christians, as a lot of us are, we come to the Bible reading with, with kind of a collective everything we know, everything we confess about Christ. But often it's good for us to try to hear these things with brand new ears. The first time we read that Jesus performs a miracle, the first time we read that Jesus casts out a demon, or the first time he says something about the nature of his relationship with his father. We have to try to understand what that means. Why is it so important that that is recorded for us? Why are these things so important, so fundamental, so crucial to the Christian faith? These things are crucial to what we confess about Christ as Christians, and as his church. We have one of these special moments today in our text. Jesus looks at a sinful woman, looks her in the eye, and guarantees her. He promises her, he assures her, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven and that's powerful these are probably the most powerful words you could ever have spoken to you and we'll learn how we can have these these words declared to us today this morning so this morning our sermon is entitled tale of two debtors and we'll see two parts of this. The first, we'll see one debtor who knows that she owes much. And second, one debtor who thinks he owes very little. So first, one debtor who knows that she owes very much. So what has happened up to this point so far in the Gospel of Luke? 
Remember, we're wanting to pay attention to, especially to new information that Luke, by the Holy Spirit, is giving to his readers, to his hearers. We want to pay attention also to the, to the overall developments of Jesus' ministry. What are we learning about Jesus through this? What new things are being testified to him and, and uh, testified about him? And how does that shape what we believe? In verse 36, so this is the, the first verse of our text, we read, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at his table, or at the table. We should understand what is going on between Jesus and the Pharisees up to this point. What, what sort of tension has been building up? When I say the word Pharisees to you, a lot of us are probably importing everything we know about Pharisees uh, into this text, right? When, when I say the word Pharisees, we're probably thinking things like, okay, these are people who are obsessed with literal law observance, strict law observance. These are self-righteous people. These are hypocrites. These people are ultimately responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. But we should hold on a, a little bit. We're not We're not quite there yet in the Gospel of Luke. A first-time reader of this Gospel certainly isn't there yet. So what would we have have learned about the Pharisees up to this point so far, just reading Luke? Well, it's not a ton. We only have five encounters with the Pharisees so far in Luke. So the first one was part of our reading this morning in 5 verse 21. Jesus healed a paralytic, and he not only heals this paralytic, but he also pronounces authoritatively, your sins are forgiven. And of course, this is interpreted by the Pharisees as blasphemy. You can't say this. Who can can declare your sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. Next encounter, 5 verse 30, they complain that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. We read that one also this morning. And of course, we see that these are really strongly connected to our text this morning. We have three more encounters, verse, or 5 verse 33, they don't approve of Jesus' uh, disciples' lack of fasting. Chapter 6, 1 through 11, they don't approve of the disciples' activity on the Sabbath. And then finally in Chapter 7, verse 30, we see that they rejected the ministry of John. So, all of these you know, five encounters, this is setting us up for what happens in our text. And there we have these major questions being addressed. Who is worthy of God's grace? Who qualifies for a relationship with God? Who qualifies for forgiveness? Who needs forgiveness? What kind of person is right with God? What does being right with God look like? And how do you act if you know, if you believe that you are on good terms with God? So one of these people, one of these Pharisees, invites Jesus to a feast at his home. 
at this point, it seems that the Pharisees aren't dead set against Jesus, as we'll see later in, in the Gospels. Maybe a better description of their feelings for Jesus at this point is suspicion. We don't know if we can agree with what he's saying. After all, it seems that Jesus is the man of the hour here at this, at this feast, the guest of honor. He's very well regarded as a teacher, at, at least. So immediately in our text, Luke presents us with the flashpoint. A sinful woman, a sinner, she comes to the feast. Now, we don't have specifics in our text. We don't know what exactly made her a sinful woman. But clearly, she has a certain sinful reputation in the city, in the town that they live in. Everybody knows about this woman. Probably she has made a name for herself as a sexually immoral woman. But she's brought a precious jar of ointment or perfume with her. And we're told that she's done this very deliberately. In verse 37, we read there, Behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So she heard that Jesus was going to be there and she went there. She sought him out. She was compelled to go to him because of what she knew about him, the things she had heard about him and perhaps she she even heard him teach at one point. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching the proper and and godly way to live. He taught how we are supposed to love one another, how we are even supposed to love our enemies. He taught how we should be judging and, and leading each other carefully and in a godly way. He taught the fact that you know your true... He taught the fact that you know your true identity by the fruit that you bear. And that's really important as we consider the state of this woman as she comes to Jesus. You know who you are by your fruit. And then chapter 6 closes after that with this devastating pronouncement on those who fail to do what Jesus teaches. In verse 49, 6 verse 49, the one who hears... The one who hears and does not do them, so do the things that Jesus teaches, the one who does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was very great. This should pierce like a dagger into the heart of every single one of us who fails to do what Jesus teaches. This woman, she knows her past. She knows perhaps even the life that she had been living right up to that point. She knows that she has not been living according to the way that Jesus is teaching. She's doomed, right? 
But she also must have heard how Jesus treats the poor in spirit. How he treats those who are low. Throughout the last few chapters of Luke, Jesus has been paying very special attention to the outsiders of society. He's paid attention to the second-class citizens, the Roman soldiers, the widows, the lepers, people who, who aren't worthy of sitting at the table of a Pharisee. Maybe Jesus is going to be kind to her too. Not that she deserves it, right? So she comes in. She goes straight to Jesus' feet. Of course, she couldn't, she couldn't kiss his hands or his face. She's way too disgusting for that, right? All the things that she's done. So she goes to his feet. But, you know, he'll, he'll probably shoo her away from his feet, too. Her feet are, or his feet are way too precious for somebody like her. Can you imagine the, the horrible feeling, the sinking feeling, that you are too disgusting for God? Knowing that you absolutely deserve to be thrown out. You don't belong here. Get out of here. God is too holy for you. That's what we deserve. That's what every single one of us deserves. Nobody deserves to know God. None of us deserves to be loved by God. We don't deserve to have fellowship with God. We have to know that. If, and if we know our sins, if we know the truth about ourselves, the way that this woman knows the truth about herself, then our hearts should break. They should break when we have the boldness to come before God in prayer, when we have the audacity to speak His name. We shouldn't be allowed to do that. Our debt is just too great. That's how our sins are described for us, as, as a debt that we absolutely can't repay. We owe a perfect life to God. We've all been created with that duty, with that obligation, with that expectation. Every good, righteous, perfect word, every pure thought, every perfect, flawless deed... We all owe these things to God. They're required of us. But we can't. We can't give these things to Him. We confess in Lord's Day 5 that because of this, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment today, tomorrow. We deserve punishment forever, for eternity. And the only way to escape that, what's the only way to escape that? How do we escape that punishment? Full payment has to be made. A payment has to be made to somehow cancel out every evil thing that we've ever done. And we also confess that, well, we can't make that payment. 
On the contrary, we read in our catechism, we daily increase our debt. The longer you live, every day that you live, the more debt you build up. The more impossible it is for you to pay up that debt that has been accruing for your entire life. And on some level, this is the realization that this woman has. The extent to which she understood the, you know, the theology behind this. Well, we can't really comment on that. But this woman realizes something of this. This is the reason for her tears. You know, what kind of tears are they? Maybe tears of, of, of sorrow and sadness because she has acted so wickedly in her life. Maybe tears of hope. Hope that somehow Jesus might fix this for her. And they're tears of love. They're tears of love because she believes that even though she doesn't deserve this, Jesus will forgive her. She believes this. This is what Jesus points to in verse 47. <clears throat> Excuse me. 7 verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. This is why she cries on his feet. This is why she kisses his feet. And then out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, out of love, she pours perfume on them. It's the most humble and loving display of just pure adoration for her Savior. Does our love for Christ look something like this? Does it look anything like this? We know, we know that we don't deserve his forgiveness. How could, we, how could we ever look Jesus Christ in the eye? Knowing what we know. Knowing, you know, we know more about what it took for that forgiveness to be obtained. We know way more about that than this woman could have known at that point. We know what Jesus had to go through because of us. We know that he had to be forsaken by God, that he had to bear God's full wrath for our sins. Knowing that he went through these things, could we possibly look our Savior dead in the eye while we're considering the, the sins that we've just committed yesterday, the sins that we committed last week? How could we face Jesus after that, could we, could we look him in the eye or would we just fall in front of him at his feet and kiss his feet and hide our faces from him? How could we do this to you, our Savior? Well, this, and this is the beautiful thing about the fullness of what our Savior gives us. He forgives our sins through his sacrifice, but then he also gives us his spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit to be at work within us so that we can begin to live the life that we're supposed to live. 
How can you possibly show your love and your gratitude to Christ for what He has just done for you? Well, not by staying in grief over your sins. We confess our sins to Him. We are grieved over them, but we don't stay in that grief. We confess our sins, but then we also resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit by grace alone, by the strength of God, to live a new life. This is something that Jesus promises that we're able to do by His strength. This is thankfulness. Striving to live a life that is pleasing to God. Not in our own strength, but constantly depending on God for both the willingness to do it and the ability to do it. This is God's work. We can thank God. God for this. And we must love Christ with our life. Anyone who truly believes that they're forgiven, anyone who knows how great their debt was, will love Christ with their whole lives. We'll come to our second point, the the second debtor. One who thinks that that he owes very little. The Pharisee in our text, well, he had a big problem with the way that this woman was carrying on with Jesus. She was touching his feet. And this is why he thinks to himself in verse 39, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. He assumes that Jesus doesn't know. He assumes this because he thinks that if Jesus knew the truth about this woman, well, he certainly wouldn't let this go on. He wouldn't let her touch his feet. He wouldn't put up with this nonsense. He would give her what she deserves. He would treat her like we all deserve out of here. And this would be a normal way for a Pharisee to treat somebody who was considered unrighteous. In the second part of our scripture reading this morning, we saw how the Pharisees disapproved of Jesus and his disciples eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is something you just don't do. You don't speak to them, you don't associate with them, and you certainly don't eat with them. You don't share table fellowship with them. This this would show oneness, solidarity, communion, oneness. And people like that, outsiders, belong on the outside. You're inside, they're outside. But we see, though, all through Jesus' ministry, he is seeking them out. People who are considered outsiders, outcasts seeking them out in order to turn them from outsiders into insiders, God's people, to transform them into the family of God. They need healing. They need forgiveness so that they can rightly enjoy communion and fellowship with God. 
And the parable that Jesus uses in the middle of this, the parable that, that Jesus tells, it reveals what the Pharisee is thinking. Simon. That Simon considers this woman to have an impossible debt with God while he and his fellow Pharisees, well, they have a much smaller debt or maybe none at all. After all, they have devoted their lives to living perfectly according to every letter of the law. This is their righteousness before God. This is how they are right with God. And this is the big difference. Jesus is comparing the two. He's comparing Simon and this woman. But not in terms of their debt. He's comparing them in terms of their attitude toward him. This woman is doing things purely out of love and gratitude. Pure love for Christ. But Simon hasn't even done a lesser version of any of these things. Simon didn't give Jesus water to to wash his feet before a meal. Jesus was a guest in his house. This would have been been an acceptable and fitting gesture on Simon's part. So he he hasn't even given water for Jesus' feet. But this woman washed his feet with her tears. Simon didn't greet him with a kiss which would have been a good, acceptable practice to greet a guest in his home. But the woman never stopped kissing Jesus' feet. Simon didn't put oil on his head. Again, this would have been a special courtesy shown to a special guest. But he didn't do this. He didn't anoint Jesus' head. But this woman anointed his feet. In all of this, this woman is, is displaying an enormous amount of gratitude. And Simon is showing none. No gratitude for Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that Simon doesn't really think that Jesus was doing anything for him that warranted gratitude. Think about this, if, if you yourself, by your own strength, by your own doing, if you are able to live perfectly, if you are able of yourself to be acceptable to God, well then you don't need Jesus' sacrifice. You don't need any benefits from Christ, right? Simon thinks that he doesn't have a large debt to pay, right? Of course, Simon has kept up on his payments every single day. And the ironic thing here is that the way that Jesus tells the parable, well, then Simon would would think, okay, yeah, the woman in the story, she's the one in the story with a large debt, and I'm the one with the small debt. Agreed. But what's the truth of the matter? What's the truth? Who has a larger debt? Who has more to pay back? Well, that's what Simon doesn't realize. We all have an impossible debt. 
It's not that one of us here needs level 5 grace and someone else here needs level 8 or level 10. Every one of us needs full forgiveness of all our sins. We all come before God equally. We all come to God with equal standing. Every single one of us comes to God with completely empty pockets. We're all beggars. That's the condition that we find ourselves in on our own. During Jesus' ministry up to this point, he has done absolutely remarkable things. He's taught the Word of God with astounding wisdom. He's healed people. He, he has raised people from the dead. He raised the centurion's daughter from the dead. And imagine if you're hearing these things for the first time. You know, these things are awesome displays of divine power. But they're a testimony to something even more important and more powerful than that. Because what good is ridding your body of a disease today if you perish eternally because of your sins? What good is raising someone from the dead today if there isn't a final and glorious resurrection? What good is present relief from oppression and trouble if we aren't released from our bondage to sin? Chapter 5, 24 and 25. We read this earlier. Jesus says, But that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Try to hear that like it's the first time. Jesus forgives your sins. Jesus forgives your sins. This is what he says to the woman. Her eyes are just full of tears. Jesus says to her, Hey, your sins are forgiven. That must have filled her heart with such peace. There she was, weeping at his feet, knowing that that she's nothing, that she's filth. She deserves to just be rejected utterly. And he looks her in the eye and he says to her the best thing that she could ever hear, the best thing that anybody could ever tell this woman, Jesus Christ says to her, hey, you're going to be okay. Your past all these awful things that, that you've done, the things that you're struggling with now, your reputation in this town, it's all washed away. It's gone. It's forgotten. Your sins are forgiven. I said just a moment ago, you know, can you yourself, can you imagine what this was for her? 
But I ask you this. What would happen to you right now in your heart if Jesus looked you in the eye and said this with the full authority that he has? Your sins are forgiven. Everything you've ever done from the first day of your life through through today, through this morning, your sins are forgiven. Even that major, major sin that you're thinking about right now, whatever it is, the one that you can barely bring yourself to confess to God, that even that thing that, that you have, have not been able to speak to another living soul about, but you've confessed it to God. Jesus says to you today, I took care of it. I paid for it. Don't worry. It's covered. This is exactly what is being declared to each of you this morning. This is the word of God for you. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to him, even the worst one, especially that one that you haven't dealt with yet. Confess it to God. Psalm 32, stanza 2. This is the version we have in our book of praise. To you, O God, of justice and compassion, I then at last acknowledged my transgression. I said, my misdeeds I to you confess, and you forgave my guilt and sinfulness. This is yours. This is yours today. Remember and believe that the precious body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken and his blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And now what? You can never pay that back. So how do you respond to Christ for all the forgiveness that he gives? Psalm 116, what shall I render to my Savior now for all the riches, for all the riches of his consolation? I will lift up the cup of his salvation and call upon his name with thankful vow. We'll sing that song of thanks now out of, out of pure love for Christ. For what he has done. People of God, your sins are forgiven. Amen.